Chapter Eight of Miss Frances Baird, Detective, by Reginald Wright Kaufman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the cellar, there are many qualities that go in the making of you if you are a good detective. Some are greater than others, and the presence of the big ones makes up for the absence of the smaller. But three things you must be: you must be brave, you must think and act quickly, and you must always be ready to subordinate previous orders to the present emergency. Now there was I in Bromley Deneen's vacant room, with the stark, bloody body of his murdered brother only a few feet away, and that guilty odor of burning clothes coming up through the register. If I hadn't had courage, I would either have gone at once to Kemp or immediately have fainted. If I hadn't been able to think and act quickly, I would have delayed until whatever opportunity there was had passed. And if I hadn't been willing to subordinate orders to the emergency, I would have said, No, I was told to stay near that body and stay I will. But I was certain that the murderer of young James Deneen was either at that moment in the cellar or had just left it, and so, little as I liked the task, I resolved to lose no time and to investigate for myself. I closed the register as carefully as I had opened it, and getting to my feet, stole out into the dark hall. There I quickly and quietly took off my suede dancing slippers and stepped out of my skirt, the long train of which I knew would impede me if things came either to fighting or running away. Then I deposited the discarded accoutrements in a convenient corner, and, taking my revolver in my right hand, tiptoed down the hall to the head of the stairs. The door of the gift-room was closed, and though I could hear the sound of subdued voices, and, I thought, sobbing inside, I paused only long enough to assure myself that I was thus far undetected, and at once began my descent. The stairs and the rooms below were still as bright as day, exactly as Mr. Deneen had left them, in fact, for he always insisted, as I afterwards learned, on closing the house himself of nights, and were all the more terrifying for the illumination that made their silence and desolation so ghastly. But I got down safely enough, and making my way through the empty ballroom, and so back to the pantry, I found the cellar door opening into the kitchen precisely where I had thought it would be. Thus far I had come without any adventure, but the kitchen was dark, and my eyes having by this time become accustomed to the glare of the other rooms, I might as well have been blind so far as the hasp of that cellar door was concerned. Naturally, the strength of my attack lay largely in the silence with which it was conducted, and so I did not dare to open the door without first examining it. To strike a light might mean detection, and even death. What was I, then, to do? I ran my stupid fingers over the door, but though ominously unbolted, it was closed tight, and I was forced to make my way back into the other rooms in order to secure some matches there, and strike one at as great a distance as possible from the door which led to my invisible enemy. Fearing to go quickly, lest my steps be heard by the person probably directly under my feet, my progress was necessarily of the slowest, and was fraught, too, with a couple of disappointments. The dining-room, cleared for the dance, gave no sign of a match, and neither did the parlour beyond. I had, therefore, to cross the hall to the smoking-room, before I had secured a handful of lucifers, and thus, by the time I had struck one, with as little noise as might be, and started back toward the kitchen, several minutes had slipped away. Nor did my trouble cease there. I had to hold my revolver and the unlit matches in one hand, while carrying the lighted match in the other, and thus I experienced all sorts of difficulties in protecting my miniature torch from spectral draughts. Twice it died before I was able to light a second or third match in the fading flame. At last, however, I succeeded. I got to the kitchen with a light going merrily, 
and then, guarding the glimmer as best I might, I turned toward the entrance to the cellar. The door was ajar. I don't think that even the sight of Jimmy Deneen's mutilated body gave me such a thrill of terror as did that plain, every-day deal door, standing two inches open and showing a black strip behind. I had felt it tight-closed a few minutes ago, and now it was open. But my nerves weren't quite gone for all that. Quick as a net return at tennis, I pushed that door shut and shoved home the bolt, my match dropping in darkness to the floor, and thus leaving me less of a mark than I had been for whoever, if anybody, had entered the kitchen during my absence. Then I backed against the wall, and my revolver, cocked and ready, waited. The silence and the blackness were unbroken. Well, that sort of thing couldn't go on forever. I stood it as long as I could, and then quickly reached out my arm and began to grope about the wall above my head. Sure enough, there was a gas jet above me. I turned on its key full force with my left hand, passed my revolver to my right, and then as quickly as I could struck and applied a match to the burner. The welcome light flashed up instantly. The room was empty. I searched it thoroughly. Under tables and into cupboards I looked, but there was no one there. Perhaps, I said, the door had come open of itself. In that case, the person in the cellar, supposing that the person had remained, must now, through the noise I had made, be apprised of my presence. But at all events it was my business to go down into that cellar, and so down I went. I started timidly, trembling at every creak of the desperate stairs. But at last, realizing that there was far more danger in a slow than in a sudden approach, I rushed down the remaining steps and bounded onto the concrete floor. There again I came to a pause. The place was in utter blackness. It behoved me immediately to find a light, and once more the luck was on my side. In the foundation wall, just at the foot of the stairway, I soon found a jet and had it aglow. The cellar, as I now saw, was a relatively small one and, as is not uncommon in old houses, ran under only a comparatively small portion of the building. But it was full of threatening shadows, and my first duty lay in determining that none of these concealed a foe. It was an ugly task, for I knew that I was going about in full light, an excellent target for any one with a mind to take a shot at me. Still, it had to be done, and somehow or other I did it, and finally convinced myself that I was, for the moment at least, alone. That done, I made my way to the big furnace. It was none of your modern street-iron affairs, but a large, sturdy thing, bricked in and standing like a tomb in the very centre of the vault. The doors were all closed, but I saw by the disturbance of the dust about that one which received the coal that it had lately been opened, and when I got it unhooked, and, looking nervously back of me every now and then over my shoulder, held a lighted match inside, I saw evidence enough to convince me that my suspicions about that odour were justified. The furnace had been properly cleaned and left empty for the summer, but on the bare bones of the irons was a pile of fine white ashes, the relic of some garment that had been thoroughly consumed. Manifestly, this was a thing to be left for the police, but I decided that I had earned some share in it, and so I carefully gathered a handful, the ashes were still warm, and put it in my handkerchief. Next, knowing that any hard, small substances which defied the flame would have fallen through the wide bars of the grate, I opened the lower door, and lighting match after match, made as thorough a search as was, in the circumstances, possible. And my diligence was rewarded. Directly under the ashes above, and amid a similar pile below, was a small metal button, such a button as someone with a liking for fancy things might wear, say, on a lounging garment or on the waistcoat to evening clothes. I pocketed this for future reference, and then, turning out the light, made my way, with renewed calm, 
upstairs to the ground floor. Whoever had been in that cellar when I first came downstairs had got away while I was in the smoking-room after matches, but I had not made the trip, I felt, in vain. Leaving the kitchen in darkness, then, behind me, I got safely through the ground-floor rooms and had set my foot on the first step of the main stairs when, to my utter surprise, I heard a key familiarly inserted into the dead latch of the front door, and turning, saw that door open carelessly. I had time only to put my revolver and my little parcel behind my back when Bromley Deneen appeared on the threshold, a little the worse for drink, perhaps, but calmly smoking a cigarette. He started at seeing me, and considering the appearance which I must have presented, that was scarcely to be wondered at. "'Hello, Miss Baird,' he cried. "'What's up?' I gathered myself together for a great effort. "'At last,' I said, "'I've been looking for you everywhere. Your father wants you at once in the gift-room upstairs. Something terrible has happened.'" End of chapter 8